Now on Documentary News Talk, producers Sean O'Boyle and Morris Callagher explore how community scientists are making big discoveries. This is Citizen Science. Most scientific research is done by people who have studied and trained to become scientists, people who are experts in their chosen topic. They might do that research in a university or a research institute, they might do experiments in a lab, they might do field work, or they might analyze data at a computer. But it's usually done by people who have trained for years to do that job. And the same is true for most kinds of research, not just science. But science is changing, it's opening up a bit, and there are more opportunities for people who aren't traditionally trained scientists to get involved. Citizen science is a type of research where people who aren't professional scientists are taking part in the process. They're helping to collect and analyze data and to make new discoveries. In this program, we'll be exploring citizen science in Ireland through seven different projects. The first one starts out in space and it involves professional and amateur astronomers working together to map some very important objects in the night sky. I went to Dunsink Observatory to learn about the Nematode project. I'm Jonathan Mackey. I'm a researcher at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies at Dunsink Observatory. And I do research on a, a range of topics, so high energy astrophysics, computational astrophysics and also uh, studying meteors um, hitting the top of the atmosphere. So meteors are um, tiny little bits of rock or dust. Basically in the solar system you have planets, you have moons, smaller than them you have asteroids and the asteroids range in size from like a thousand kilometers in diameter down to a few meters. But the things that you have in the solar system, they, they, there's basically there's a range of sizes and it just keeps going smaller and you have more and more small things because the asteroids crash into each other, the comets hit things and uh, some of the asteroids are actually just basically lumps of sand and stones that are held together really loosely by gravity so if anything perturbs them they lose some of the sand, gravel, dust. And because the Earth is going around the Sun, we're moving through the solar system pretty fast, at a few tens of kilometers per second. This means that the atmosphere of the Earth then is hitting a lot of these bits of dust that are that are going through through space. And uh, when they hit the top of the atmosphere, they're traveling actually at typically about 10 kilometers per second. It's about the velocity of the, of the, the Earth around the Sun. And if something is going through the atmosphere at 10 kilometers per second, it gets really hot. So just from the friction with the, with the atmosphere, it, it gets really hot and, and they burn up. And that's what we see. We see this little flash, something moving really fast across the sky, uh, which we call shooting star. Typically, the things we see are, are only like a, a centimeter in diameter. They're just like a really small stone. So we have some meteor cameras here at the observatory. Basically, some modified security cameras, effectively. They're a bit more complicated. So there's amateur astronomers who have a meteor observation network, and they order it's all off-the-shelf equipment. So you get these cameras, IMX291. They're just digital cameras that are uh, suitable for low light level. So nighttime CCTV. And uh, 
they're connected to Raspberry Pis, which are very cheap, low-tech computers. So it's basically just a, a video camera, digital video camera. It's recording the sky all the time. And the software on the computer that is basically any time any motion is detected, if enough of the pixels are triggered that, the, that there's movement, then it will start recording and it'll record a video clip. Each clip on its own is not very useful because you don't actually know how high the thing was up in the atmosphere. So we use triangulation. So if two cameras, we try to point the cameras so that the, the field of view crosses over so they can both see the same thing. And then if they both see a, a meteor, you're seeing it from a different perspective and you can triangulate. And you can actually get then its speed through the atmosphere, how high it was, what angle it was coming in at. So then you can retrace that backwards and say what its orbit was. So you can say if this, uh, if this meteor came from the asteroid belt or if it came from a comet from the Kuiper belt. So you, you can really say a lot um, just, just if you just have two cameras. And if you have more, you get an even more accurate solution. So the two main drivers for this are one for human spaceflight. You don't want to send any astronauts into a region where there's lots of meteors in space because, you know, the Earth is going through space at tens of kilometers per second, so are the rockets, and the meteor will just basically go through the hull of the spaceship. And you, so you get these micrometeorite strikes that, that will damage the spaceship, and you want to minimize the chances of that. So you want to keep the astronauts safe. So that's one thing, is making a 3D map of the solar system of where there's not so many meteors and where there are a lot of them. They tend to follow streams where comets come in or where asteroids have been. And then the second thing is if there's a, a big meteor, these can actually then make it to the ground. So quite often they will explode in the air, so they'll come in and at about 10 kilometer altitude then they will explode uh, because it just gets so hot and the stress is too great. And then little bits of the meteor will land on the ground. Well, usually they land in the sea, but they can land in farmland or forests. Actually, a couple of years ago, there was a famous meteorite that was recovered from exactly this method, the, the Winchcombe meteorite. And our colleagues in the UK using the UK Fall, which was a collaboration of Nemetode and the Global Meteor Network and a few other meteor observers all getting together and agreeing that if they detected a fireball, they would gather all their data together as quickly as possible and then try and go out and try and find the meteorite. And in this one, they, they did, they found it. And if you can find them quickly and bring them into a lab quickly in a controlled environment, then you can actually learn a lot about the solar system. So the solar system researchers who spend their lives cutting these meteorites in half and taking, you know, analyzing what's inside them. And you can, you can learn a lot about the composition of the solar system before the planets formed and when the planets were forming. It's, it's an inspiring thing as well, to be honest. Um, hopefully most people will see a shooting star in their lifetime. <laughs> With all the light pollution that we have now, it's not a, it's not a given that you, you have to get well out of the city and you have to have a clear night and you have to know which night to go looking. So like the Perseid meteor shower is the best one because it's in 11th to the 12th, 13th of August. So if you can go out on that night, on one of those nights, you have a really good chance of seeing a, a lot of meteors.
Nematode is a great example of professional and amateur astronomers working together. Both groups are experts, but they're doing astronomy in different ways. Now, there's lots of different types of expertise that people can bring to citizen science projects. I went to Dublin City University to learn about research on water quality that is being supported by people who know their local rivers and streams, either because they live or spend time near them, or because they swim or kayak in them. My name is Dr. Susan Hegarty from the School of History and Geography here in DCU and the DCU Water Institute. And I'm interested in how water moves through landscapes and how humans can influence that water, in particular in water quality and water quantity. Everything that we do influences water quality and water quantity. So water quality, the main things I suppose when we think about the contamination of water. So within an urban area like Dublin, misconnections of sewers that you know, your plumbing might not be quite right and it ends up going into the drainage system rather than going into the sewage system. Things like spreading chemicals or fertilisers on land that eventually get washed through rainfall and through runoff into rivers. All those types of things can influence water quality. So what I'm interested in is how can we work with communities to try and monitor what's happening within our urban and our rural streams and rivers It started in a small way. So it started with a project that we had on the River Liffey as it flows through Dublin. Lots of us see it every day. And it's been monitored by the local authority, by Dublin City Council for water quality and by the EPA. But some of the areas don't get monitored as much as they possibly should to get monitored. And so we had a project which was working with people who use the Liffey. Why these people got involved was because Many of them were people like paddleboarders, kayakers, that were asking the question of, if I fall in, what happens? What am I falling into? And so they had an interest and a reason to learn about the water. They also knew a lot about the water themselves. So they knew much more about the river maybe than we did. And so that's one of the really important things about citizen science is it's working with community groups and it's that mutual benefit that we get. We find out lots from their knowledge and they find out lots about from our knowledge. What we're doing in the DC Water Institute specifically is monitoring nutrients, so monitoring phosphates and nitrates, and looking at turbidity, which is how much sediment is within the water. The first water bits that we had was in 2020. A water blitz is when we say, okay, for one weekend, we're going to get as many people as we can out to monitor. Any stream, any ditch, any pond, any lake, whatever you want, whatever's near you, go out and monitor it. And within a couple of hours, we had 800 responses. We didn't have 800 kits. So that, it, that was the level of interest in the community. The really interesting thing about this is that it is people testing the water themselves. So it's not about going out, gathering a sample of water and sending it off to a lab somewhere. They go out, take a sample of water, um, measure it, and then put the, sa- put the water into the tube. And the water with the reagent in it changes colour depending on how much phosphates and nitrates are in it. They then read that colour off of a chart, which gives them an indication of what level of phosphates or nitrates are there. So getting people involved monitoring allows an army of scientists to monitor water quality. 
So, citizen science is helping us understand what's going on in our solar system, in our rivers, along our coastlines, but can it be used to improve our understanding of the human mind? I went to Trinity College Dublin to find out about Neureka, an app that is helping researchers study mental health in new ways. My name is Claire Gillen and I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin. Um, I'm talking to you today because um, my lab has a smartphone app that we use to connect members of the public to research in neuroscience and mental health. We're interested in all things mental health and particularly understanding the mechanisms through which mental health problems arise. So what brain processes, what tendencies uh, or individual differences people have in how their brain works that sets the stage for mental health problems um, later in life um, and how we can use other indicators or other measures of brain function, abilities and differences to do things like tailoring treatment to individuals or predicting what's going to happen to them down the line. So when I started out in research, I would literally sit in a clinic um, all day and uh, beg um, people who had a condition that I was studying at the time, obsessive compulsive disorder, to spend an hour in a locked room on a university campus um, uh, playing computerized tasks that tell us things about how their brain works or maybe do an MRI scan or something of this sort. It's very, very laborious. We'd work for a year, maybe two, to try and get um, 30 people through a study. So lots and lots of time, um, really good um, experiences that you get and really good on the ground training, but a lot of time for not a lot of data. And that's a problem for research because when we don't have a lot of data, we can't really generalize our insights to the population, which is what we always try and do in science. So um, the app broadly is about connecting members of the public to the scientists. So finding a way to help people who want to participate in research be able to do that in an easier way because participating in research is um, kind of a privilege in many ways. You have to often be able to travel to a research centre between nine to five on a work day, which means you don't have, you know, caring responsibilities or you've got a certain amount of flexibility in your job. So um, it's about creating that space where more and more people can participate much more easily in research studies. The sorts of studies that we do um, are quite broad. So some focus on basic mechanisms. So we'll have people do different sorts of games that have what we call cognitive tests hidden inside them in the mechanics of the game. And they can tell us things like, you know, the extent to which somebody makes a choice based on a, a plan they have five steps into the future, or are they making decisions based on, well, what worked well a second ago? And those are two very different kinds of learning that we know are associated with differences in certain aspects of mental health, in particular, how compulsive people tend to be, maybe with drugs or alcohol or even aspects of obsessive compulsive disorder. One game that we do looks at something called metacognition, and that is how well a person is able to reflect on their own abilities. So how accurate am I at judging myself? And what we find is that um, people with depression, for example, as you can imagine, think they're a lot worse than they are at different tasks that they do. Um, so we would measure that in a game, a game that we have in the app, which is called MetaMind, works that people um, see a series of um, images and they have to judge which side is busier than the other. 
But there's a trick in that we actually adapt the game to everybody's own ability at this kind of perceptual task, at this detection task. So everybody's performing about the same. We make it more difficult if you're um, good at it or easier if you're not very good. And then we ask you to rate your performance on every trial, whether you think you got it correct or not. So that allows us to measure two things. One is what's your overall bias to saying that I'm a bit crap. Um, And secondly, on a trial by trial basis, how accurate are you at detecting when you were right versus when you were wrong? And that's called your metacognitive sensitivity. So we can measure these two things and look at how that relates to different aspects of mental health. And that's been really informative for us in trying to understand um, certain biases in depression and how they come about. And we've done kind of a lot of research using modifications to tasks like this that have helped us understand the, the, the cause of that sort of bias, which seems to be uh, real um, fundamental issues with um, self-esteem and um, placing yourself in context of others and even to your, um, or, or objectively to a specific task. And that's something that treatments for depression um, try and address. So one of the hopes that we'd have is we know that depression is, is variable, right? People get depressed for many different reasons. So maybe the people who are depressed because of these issues with self-esteem, with self-assessments, can be targeted more effectively with certain kinds of talking therapy than other forms of depression. At the end of all of our challenge, we call them science challenges in the app, we give people back some insights about, you know, like I described to you um, moments ago, we'll, we'll tell people this is what this test was really looking at and explain how that works or tell them we've shown previously or other studies have shown that this kind of ability tends to, you know, correlate with things like compulsiveness or things like um, low mood. So we give people, you know, insights like that. Another thing we try and do is gain our tasks so that they're more tolerable. I am reticent to use the word fun, but they're more tolerable. So we're really like working, you know, as hard as, hard as we can as, as, as scientists to make, to move away from the old world, which was again, sitting in these windowless rooms, you know, playing the same task or trial 200, 300 times for 20 minutes where people would legitimately fall asleep to trying to do the same or get the same quality data from much shorter games that are playful and have cover stories and and are adaptive to people's own abilities, all these kinds of game design techniques. So implement them where possible. Data from citizen scientists, it's, you know, my view is it's actually better than the classic form of data where you're paying a 21-year-old female college student to do your study. Um, because people are intrinsically motivated and I think you get better quality data that way. But every sample that you recruit has their own differences. And so it's really important to understand if you have a general principle on your hands or something that's just bespoke to obviously the super engaged and energetic users we have of our app who are a subset of the population. There are lots of different ways that people can participate in citizen science projects. And there's sort of a scale of how involved you can get. And it starts at crowdsourcing, where people help scientists collect data. A great example of this is the Big Beach Clean. This is an annual event run by the Clean Coasts program in Antashka, which is the National Trust for Ireland. Every year, thousands of Clean Coasts volunteers 
spend a day cleaning up their local beaches and shorelines. And they document every piece of litter they collect. Each group of beach cleaners will keep track of the types of litter they find and how much they find. And this is important data because it gives the Clean Coast's team a better understanding of what the litter and pollution issues are around the coast at that particular time. So then they can make a plan for dealing with it. Further up the scale, you have projects where volunteers can get even more involved. They might do some of the experiments themselves, like the experiments to test water quality, or they might even help design the experiments. And this has so much potential, because scientists would be working with communities to understand the problems they need to solve. And then they would figure it all out together with everyone contributing their own knowledge and experience. Citizen science is a broad spectrum and it has lots of potential in a country like ours. Some important discoveries could be made when citizen scientists and professional scientists work together. So far, a lot of citizen science projects in Ireland have focused on wildlife conservation. Since 2007, the National Biodiversity Data Centre has been working with wildlife organisations and citizen scientists to record sightings of different species in Ireland. There has been projects looking at frogs, sharks, hedgehogs, butterflies and lots of other species. And scientists then use this data to figure out things like which species are endangered, or to understand how native plants and animals are being impacted by invasive species. In part two, we'll meet two people working on projects like this, where they team up with volunteers to survey local wildlife and contribute to protection policies and conservation efforts. We'll also find out how a very similar approach can help archeologists make important discoveries about our history. You're listening to Citizen Science on Documentary News Talk. Some of the longest running citizen science projects in Ireland have been run by people working to document and understand and protect local wildlife. Lots of animal species have been impacted by things like climate change, pollution and habitat destruction. And for years now, volunteers have been helping gather information on how different species are doing. And this information helps with conservation work and it helps shape environmental policies. The Irish Wildlife Trust has been working with communities all around Ireland. So I went to their offices to find out about their work and about some of the animals that they help monitor and protect. I'm Kieran Flood. I am the coordinator of the Irish Wildlife Trust. So at the Irish Wildlife Trust, we've always had an interest in citizen science. It's a really great way to get people very directly engaged with nature. People learn a lot about the wildlife itself and the skills, and they are contributing to the data to help conserve species. So it's, it's a great um, technique of engagement. So the newts and lizards we surveyed a few years back, and what we did was there were two species that were somewhat 
overlooked in Ireland. There wasn't a lot of data on them, and they're uh, both important native species uh, that need protection. Um, so what we did was we designed a sort of simple survey that people could do with a small amount of training and not didn't need too much equipment. And then we started rolling out. Um, we did the two species separately. So I think for a couple of years we were doing newts and then we started doing the same with lizards. And really we just did workshops around the country where we advertised it for anyone to come and learn the, the survey techniques. And then we asked people to survey in their local area. So with the newts, they were focusing on a, a water body in their local area. And we taught people how to identify the eggs and the little sort of tadpole phase and the adult phase. And then they went and, and monitored a water body at a particular time of year. And likewise with the lizards, they're a fascinating species. Most people don't even know we have lizards in Ireland. Um, but we do have one species of native lizard and it's quite widespread. So we were again able to devise a technique that without too much equipment, just a sort of a, a, f- a felt mat, people could then go out and survey their local area for lizards. As it's a citizen science project, an important step is that they send the results back to us. Um, so they were the projects that we ran on newts and lizards. And then we would have shared that data with the National Biodiversity Data Centre once we got it from the, uh, from the citizen scientists. The data centre is a great resource in that when a charity or an individual or anyone you know, sends data to them, they will make it publicly available to anybody who needs it. So really anything that's sent to them could be used by any scientist or any policymaker to, to get access to that data. So it could be used to learn about the trends of a species, whether it's declining or stable. It could be used to learn about the distribution of a species, which is also very important for conservation because if if the distribution is shrinking, that's a, a sign that the species needs help. Um, so the data's got a lot of uses, um, and when once it's with the Biodiversity Data Centre, it just means it's very available for researchers and the public. As a, a charity, that's our goal is to engage people with nature. It's sort of a win-win for everyone because the people coming to the workshops, they may be coming for a few reasons. You would learn new skills. So some people were coming more so for the skills side to learn surveying skills and you know build up a bit of experience surveying. But you'll also learn about the species itself and, and nature. So it enriches your, your engagement with nature because you're learning uh, a bit more about it. And you're also contributing to a conservation effort. One group of insects that lots of people have been working hard to protect are bees. Bees are an important part of our ecosystem and their numbers have been declining. Our populations of insects in general in Ireland are declining and what we feel is the factors, the main factors that are stressing out are are pollinating insects and other insects. Then there would be habitat destruction would probably be the top of the list and what that is in practice would be sort of maybe the conversion of wild, old-fashioned meadows to more intensive grassland systems, or the destruction of hedgerows, or general destruction of sort of scrub areas. So wild or less intense uh, areas are unfortunately disappearing. But when it comes to the bees, then there is also the use of insecticides, pesticides that are 
damaging um, the bee populations as well. So they would be the, the two main factors would be habitat destruction and pesticide use. So in recent years, the Irish Wildlife Trust has run a project called People for Bees. So the Irish Wildlife Trust is a partner organisation of the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan. And we were noticing that the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan was leading the way in citizen science uh, when it comes to bees, bumblebees and butterflies in particular. So that's the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan is run by the National Biodiversity Data Centre. And they were doing great work um, getting people engaged with, with pollinating insects, uh, citizen science. So we just thought we'd, our role could be more supporting their work. And so what we started doing was running workshops with the same sort of model of going out to our members and going out to community groups and teaching people all about bumblebees, how to identify them, teaching people about their biology and their interesting life cycles and how to survey them. And then we would just not do any of the coordinating of the surveying or the data. We would then essentially encourage those people to then go and do the biodiversity data centers survey. So it was, it worked well because we were helping increase the amount of training people and communities were receiving. Uh, we were engaging with the public a lot and it was also helping increase the, the survey effort for the data centers work. There's lots of interesting work being done in Ireland using a citizen science approach to wildlife conservation. Even if we just focus on birds, there are so many projects to explore. I wanted to learn about a project by Birdwatch Ireland, where people help document the birds they see and hear in their villages, towns and cities across Ireland. So I called Tara Adcock, the Urban Birds Project Officer at Birdwatch Ireland. So Birdwatch Ireland is the largest environmental non-governmental organisation in Ireland. Our mission is to protect and conserve birds in Ireland through a number of different surveys, through protection work, for instance, at the at our turn colonies. And we also rely quite heavily on citizens and volunteers for a lot of our survey work as well. So when I think of an urban space, I think of anything from a village up until a city. Um, and areas around these cities are also influenced by the urban space as well. So it's quite a large catchment area. When we think of urban birds, what we're typically thinking of are species which are quite adaptable. So these are species which are really good at using resources wherever they're found. So a really good example of this would be the herring gull. But there is one species that we gen we don't think of as, as quite as adaptable, as is not as adaptable as, say, for instance, a herring gull, and that's the common swift. But it is an intrinsic part of our built environment, um, and it's heavily dependent on our built environment. They would traditionally have nested in like uh, tree hollows or sea cliffs, that kind of thing. But then we came along, we started building these homes and the Swifts moved into the kind of like holes in the, in the stonework and stuff like that and started nesting in those. And over time, they became incredibly dependent on this built environment. In more recent decades, we've seen um, a massive, massive decline in Swift populations. So between 1998 and 2016, we saw a 58% decline in Swift numbers in Ireland. And we know that through the Countryside Bird Survey. And the really interesting thing about the Countryside Bird Survey is that it is largely dependent on volunteers. So we wouldn't know about this decline if it wasn't for citizen science. The reason that the Swifts are declining 
in Ireland, it's, it's multifaceted again. So climate change is definitely playing a role. Um, insect populations are declining. We know this from Germany. So in Germany, over 25 years, they studied insect populations at several different sites, and they found up to a 76% decline in insect uh, populations at these sites. And if that's happening in Germany, that's definitely happening here because we have the same agricultural practices. So those are two things that are definitely affecting SIFs. But the third thing that's affecting SIFs is lack of nesting habitat. So the last 10 to 15 years in Ireland, we've gotten really, really good at sealing up our, our buildings. So our new builds, there's not a crack to be found in them. So we're not providing that kind of nesting space for the Swiss to come into. A lot of times people are, aren't, aren't aware that Swiss are actually nesting in their buildings because they're really unobtrusive. They don't leave a mess. They're not loud or anything. So people might come along and block up those, those nest sites, which are really, really small. Uh, not realising that there's swift nesting in there. The swift comes back, doesn't have a nest site. They're incredibly site faithful, like unbelievably site faithful. So if that nest site is blocked up, they won't just go and find another one. They just won't breed that year. So that's why we're seeing these massive, massive declines in them. Um, so there's hundreds of volunteers that are involved, not just with the Countryside Bird Survey, but also with the Garden Bird Survey, which again is coordinated by Birdwatch Ireland. So for instance, with the Irish Garden Bird Survey, which has just finished up there, they're recording what they see in their back garden. And some people are recording what they're seeing in, in their office space, that kind of thing. Um, and that's giving us some really, really interesting data, which we can then pair up and contrast with the Countryside Bird Survey, where again, people are going out and they're walking these transect lines and just recording what they're seeing, but also what they're hearing. So these people are really, really skilled. They are also able to recognise a myriad of bird songs, bird calls, which are even more difficult than songs. Um, and they're, they're recording all this and sending it in. So these, these people are not only willing to help, but they're also highly skilled individuals. But what they're finding, basically what we do is we have species trends. So we can understand how a species is faring over time. And based off of this, we make what's called the Birds of Conservation Concern in Ireland list. It's like a traffic light system. So we have the green list, which means species are doing okay. We have the amber list, which means species are starting to decline. And then we have the red list. And the red list is where you don't want to be because the red list means that the species has declined by over 50% within a specified period of time. So we have species like the swift is on the red list, unfortunately, um, curlew, corncrake, all of these species are just not doing that well. And we know this, again, because of people going out there being absolute legends and recording this data for us and sending it back in. Community buy-in is vital for the conservation of these species. So a lot of these birds are nesting in private residences as well as public buildings. But we need people out there aware of it and, and advocating for this and advocating for keeping them going. A really, really good example, actually, of a community group, um, a, a recent community group, which is working for SWIFT, is the Ballymun Action Group in Dublin. Um, and they're working with Trinity Comprehensive School and they've put up SWIFT nest boxes or they are putting up SWIFT nest boxes soon on the school. But not only is this providing space for SWIFTs in, in that area, but it's also bringing the next generation along. A big part of citizen science is going to communities and meeting people and learning from them and everyone sharing their knowledge and skills with each other. And it's interesting to explore how other research disciplines do this. I went to University College Dublin to learn about a community archaeology project where people help out with archaeological digs in their local communities. I'm Conor McDermott and I work in the School of Archaeology in University College Dublin and for the last number of years myself and Graham Warren and other colleagues from UCD have been running 
community and student training excavations in Glendalough in County Wicklow. It's one of the most well-known and iconic classic monastery sites. So out of the school book of monasteries, you know, it's got a round tower, it's got churches, it's got all that. But there's an awful lot not known about Glendalough, including basic stuff like what was its extent? When did it re- when, what were the actual dates of its start? What was the nature of life and industry? What would people have been like to live there in the year 700 or the year 1200? So there's a lot of basic archaeology that's never been done. The historians have often taken the lead there. So we have a programme of, of excavation targeting discrete questions. Uh, where are the limits of the, of the enclosure that the early monastery was founded on? Uh, what are the kinds of industries they have and then following up on discoveries we hadn't anticipated. We try to take a spectrum so uh, good old down on your knees digging, running soil through your fingers, learning what it's like to understand the nature deposits and identify archaeological material but before that we will have used more advanced techniques, uh, soil penetrating systems using magnetometers or resistivity surveys that will guide us as to the better places to look and then overlaid with that then are layers of, of more refined investigation. So taking samples that can be processed to look at microscopic remains. So we do work in the field, we do work in the laboratory, uh, and all the participants see that, that spectrum across. So the, if you visit the excavation, you'll see people travelling, but you'll see people sieving, you'll see people drawing, taking photographs, measuring with high-accurate survey equipment, uh, putting samples in discrete bags, take it away, cataloguing and processing all of our finds. It's a very broad spectrum. I'm Professor Graham Warren from the UCD School of Archaeology and along with my colleague Connor I've been running the Glendalough project since about 2009. I have a particular interest in the archaeology of hunter-gatherers so with, with Glendalough for, for years I've been trying to find some prehistory up there. Now that hasn't happened but there's still a really interesting story of, the, of that mountain landscape and the different ways in which people have lived in there over time and continue to live in that landscape as well. For the hunter-gatherer archaeology, it tends to be stone tools. Um, we're dealing with material that might be six, ten thousand years old, so most of the organics will have gone. So you really, most of the time, just have the stone tools left. Uh, as I say, we we haven't found anything of that character in in Glendalough so far, but but elsewhere, I work with uh, communities in Scotland on projects where we're trying to find that sort of that sort of material. Um, we're working up in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland on a, an evolving um, project where the Cairngorms are one of the, the biggest areas of upland in, in Britain, a really quite remarkable in, environment. And starting with a few finds which were made, again, of stone tools found when people were volunteers out maintaining footpaths working for the National Trust of Scotland and they had the, they had the brains to, to realise that they'd found a flint in an area there should be no flint and that was reported and that led to all the work that goes on but we're now at the stage of because it's such a big landscape and since hunter-gatherers lived there eight, ten thousand years ago the landscape is covered by peat so the small stone tools we're looking for and they're very, very small um, it's not only a really big landscape, but actually it's all covered by one to two metres of peat. So where you can actually find stuff is very, very limited. It, it's er- erosion caused by footpaths, it's riverbanks. So we're developing computer models of the most likely locations 
where sites might be, so based on how hunter-gatherers behave in other environments. Develop those computer models, which are then going to share with local groups so they can actually go out, because it's the people who live there who, who walk there most often, the people who work there who, who visit those places most often. If we can give them the information about places it might be good to look and they can feed that back into us, then that's, uh, that's doing a type of work that we, that we can't really do as a university team who arrive for a, for a small amount of time. Many years ago, I worked with a, a vocational archaeologist in the Scottish borders, and he used to walk his dog along a river. Um, and over the course of about five years, at one particular place, sometimes he'd find nothing, and sometimes he'd find one thing, and then again he might find nothing for a couple of weeks. But by the end of the five years, he'd collected, I think it was 300 pieces from this site, and we were able to come back and recognise that this was an important site and excavate it. But as a, as a university team coming in, we'd have walked past it and gone, well, there's one piece there. Maybe that's not worth doing anything with. But the, that view that a, a citizen scientist, I suppose, if you want to use that language there, that view that they have of repeated observation is actually something that is, is best done locally rather than a, a team who, who come into an area and, and you know, we've got better equipment than they do we've, we've, we've maybe in some ways got better, better training but we can't replicate that character of observation Sometimes in projects like this it's the amateurs not the professional researchers who get to make the discoveries I wanted to know what it's like when that happens the, so at the, at the Glendalock project, we've had lots of people find the kind of the, the, the routine materials of our excavation. So medieval pottery, pieces of fragmented and burnt animal bone, slag, waste material from processing iron objects. So nothing, literally all of that stuff is rubbish in, in the most literal sense. It was thrown away in the past because it was rubbish. The remains of a meal or a broken pot or a byproduct you can't do anything with. But we've also had on occasion people find some some quite spectacular materials um, in including some pieces of uh, quite elaborate Viking jewellery which were found by volunteers uh, a small uh, cross made out of jet which is a form of fossilised wood uh, only about 30 of those objects found in Europe and one of our volunteers um, found them so it, it runs the full range most of the time it's the it's, it's the, the mundane parts of the stuff we find although you know for some, if you haven't found it before, there's nothing mundane about a piece of medieval pottery, but sometimes it is much nicer material. Archaeological fieldwork is about teams and it's about communities working together in the field and you bring a diversity of people together who who want to be there you're creating a different type of team and a different type of enthusiasm and you'll have people with very very different life histories working alongside each other working alongside you you normally get quite a good quite good fun there's quite lots of discussion lots of chat people finding out about each other lots of laughter and that's a really really nice thing Lots of people at first might be concerned about, am I doing this right? There's a, 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 great, a great concern that they're going to miss something. Now, 
that's exactly the same as our students. There's, there's no difference on all of that. No one comes into university to do archaeology having done years of archaeology. Very, a vanishingly small number of people do. So there's people wanting to know and understand the process, and that's often one of the things that people seem to, to, to get a, big, a biggest kick out of. So there's the great excitement people have when they find something. And sometimes that can be great fun for us because with the best will in the world after having done this for 25 years you become a little bit jaded oh it's a, it's one of them fine and maybe it's nothing very special it's it's a a, a small shirt of pottery or a, a not very exciting stone tool but for someone who's not done it before their their sense of excitement at going I'm, I'm holding a piece of pot from the medieval period it, it's 800 years old that excitement is brilliant to see and it's infectious as well that you you get people with that form of engagement it, it reminds everyone everybody of that the joy of discovery citizen science was a Sean and Morris production by Sean O'Boyle and Morris Kelleher and was funded by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. For more documentary on Newstalk, visit newstalk.com.